Welcome to the Italian Wine Podcast. This episode has been brought to you by the Wine to Wine Business Forum 2022. This year will mark the ninth edition of the forum to be held on November 7th and 8th of 2022 in Verona, Italy. This year will be an exclusively in-person edition. The main theme of the event will be all-round wine communication and tickets are on sale now. The second early bird discount will be available until September 18th. For more information, please visit us at winetowine.net. Welcome to this special Italian wine podcast broadcast. This episode is a recording off Clubhouse, the popular drop-in audio chat. This Clubhouse session was taken from the Wine Business Club and Italian Wine Club, Listen in as wine lovers and experts alike engage in some great conversation on a range of topics in wine. If you enjoy listening, please consider donating through italianwinepodcast.com. Any amount helps cover equipment, production, and publication costs. And remember to subscribe and rate our show wherever you tune in. Hello, everybody. My name is Stevie Kim, and this is the Italian Wine Club on Clubhouse. Ciao, Julie. Buonasera. Ciao. How are you? Oh, my goodness. You're so calm. Of course, <laughs> um, this is the Ambassador's Corner, and it's a, it's a fireside chat styled with today. Our guest is Enzo Barbie. I'm very excited because I actually saw Enzo. Uh, ciao, Enzo. Hi, Stevie. Hi, everybody. Hey, how are you? You know, I actually saw Enzo a few months ago uh, when I was in that area in Orvieto, Umbria. We were doing some winery visits. We did go visit him because we had this wine all the time for Vinicius International Academy in Mare Antico. And, uh, but we didn't get a chance to chat a lot. We did taste some wines. Because it was it was it was kind of a frenzy kind of day, so I'm really looking forward to reminiscing uh, with Enzo vicariously through Julie today. So let me introduce you to Julie Farker. Um, first of all, Julie, thank you so much. I know you've been working very hard on the Italian Wine Unplugged 2.0 with Cynthia, and it is um, absolutely coming along. Hopefully, we'll we'll get a chance to. Um, show it to everybody else. Um, so thank you, thank you, thank you for doing such a hard and great work uh, for us. So for those of you who are unaware, we are coming out with a new version 2.0 of Italian Wine Unplugged. It is absolutely new in every way, not just the great entries, but is it is very much Professor Shinsa driven. There's a lot of new stuff on it. Um, even for Professor Shensa, he gave us a lot of new material. We are uh, working with some of the Shensa whisperers, namely Richard Hoff and Cynthia. So hopefully we'll, we'll get a chance to um, get that through your way. So let me start the show for today. So as you know, you know how it works. It is the Ambassador's Corner, which means that one of our ambassadors uh, from the VIA community at large they get to introduce an interview of their favorite wine producer. And today, it's Enzo Barbie with 
Julie. So Julie is, of course, our Vinitaly in Italian wine ambassador and a wine educator. She's also an educator herself. You teach English, right, Julie? Yes, English. Where do you and teach history. English and so history? I, yes, so I teach high school, uh, nine to twelve. Oh Charlotte my God! Army, God Florida. bless you. <laughs> this is my nineteenth year, so I have about eleven years to go. Oh my goodness! You know, I understand there is a shortage of teachers in America at the moment. Is that? Are you feeling that at all? Yes, in, at your I've, school. Yes, I've had to actually take on a few more history classes because of the teacher shortage. So I'm a very busy woman, but I love, you know, I always say, just give me students and I'll make them learn. So yeah, it's a challenge. I, mean, I, can, but... I can definitely see that. I met Julie when, when of course, um, like I think one of my Instagram, like, right, posts. Yes. And I said, mm-hmm. I'll give a free book, free copy to anybody. The first person who, you know, guesses this great variety or something like that, some shit like that. And and of course, you were the first one. And that's how I met you, I, I recall. Is that correct? Yes. Mm-hmm. It was about was, the native um, grapes. I remember Yeah, that. it was about yeah. the native grapes. And we were starting the TikTok. And this was like a couple of years back. And so I met Julie through through Instagram of all places. And then, then she did the course she did in um, New York City. And that was a, a bumper crop. Like many, many people passed got their certificate in the New York edition. And then, of course, you came back you, um, for Vinitaly this year, and you were you judged for five-star wines, right? Yes, that was a great experience. Right. And hopefully we can have you back. So, Julie, listen, I always ask, why did you choose Enzo Barbie to on the call today your, as your favorite producer? So I chose Enzo because I met him through the Orvieto Wine Ambassador Program. So All besides, right, with Tanya. Right? Yes. So I'm representing Orvieto Wines, and it was a great opportunity to meet Enzo and the producers in June during a very, very hot week <laughs> that I still remember. But yeah. it was we had traveled to all the different producers, but Enzo was one of the main ones who was a spearhead behind the project. And so... You know, the whole goal is to just talk about Orvieto wines, how it's not just a one-size-fits-all wine, and how it's so very um, different based on its soils. So, of course, meeting him and the passion that he had for Orvieto and its wines, so that's why I wanted to talk to him today. So did you, um, had you um, had, well, well, you of course had a, um, a um, an opportunity to taste his wine during Venetian International Canada because we always had his wine, De Cugnano de Barbe, but I don't know if we had that in, in New York. Did we have this wine? No, I, maybe I don't remember because I was looking at pictures because I right. had pictures and I don't remember this wine yeah, maybe, for that maybe not, particular not class. Stateside. Yeah, because we got a lot of our wines from Italy and I'm not sure they had his wine. But usually he's really kind and he donates his wine for Vinitaly International Academy. I do recall his wine before meeting him. And I was like, you know when that happens, like you know the wine, but you don't know the face behind it. And then you meet mm-hmm. the person and you're like, oh, my God, it's you. <laughs> you know, so it was very exciting. And he had, he's, he's a very good um, storyteller. So I'm looking forward to the call today. And this is where I just kind of slide it out and I pass on the to you. So over to you, Julie. I will come back if there are any questions 
uh, towards the end of the call today. Okay? Perfect. Thank you, okay. Stevie. Ciao. Ciao. Thank you. All right. Well, buona sera and good evening to everyone. My name is Julie, and I am also an owner of the Italian Cellar, and I'm here tonight with Enzo Barbie. Enzo is the owner of, the, of De Cognano de Barbie, located in the landlocked region, which we will talk about why that's important, of Umbria. And of course, knowing a little bit about Enzo before we begin, he was actually born in northern Italy in the city of Brescia, and he spent most of his summers at De Cugnano, and we'll talk about how the Barbie family had migrated from the northern part of Italy to central Italy. And before working with wine, he graduated with his business administration degree and wasn't working in agriculture or winemaking, but he was working in the corporate finance world and then eventually made his way back to Umbria and he joined De Cugnano de Barbi to help his father full time. So we're going to learn a little bit more about the background of the winery today. So good evening. Buonasera, Enzo. How are you? Buonasera, Julie. Buonasera to everybody. I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me on this show. I'm really excited and uh, looking forward to talk to you about our Vieta wines. Yes, and that's especially why I wanted to talk to you because I know I saw you in June and it was quite an amazing week as I was telling Stevie because we were visiting producers, learning more about Orvieto and its wines and especially the importance of the, the various soils. And of course, De Cugnano was such a beautiful estate. The property was amazing. I was just mesmerized by it. So of course, I guess that, and I guess that's a perfect place to start. So I know that I had just mentioned about how your family had made its way from Brescia to Umbria, but can you just tell us a little bit more about De Cugnano de Barbi itself? Oh yeah, of course, Julie. Uh, we are ba uh, located just outside of the town of Orvieto, so let's say 30 minutes by car. Orvieto is not far, but you know, in Umbria and in central Italy, the roads are terrible and uh, all narrow and with lots of turns, so it takes forever to get to point A to point B. So even if I'm not so far from Orvieto, and you can actually see the rock of, of Orvieto very well from my property, it takes about 30 minutes to get here. And uh, uh, the history of the winery is um, uh, really goes back in in century. Uh, I always like to start from from the name the uh, Cugnano de Barbie. Barbie is my family name, and that, that's the easy part. Um, but the Cugnano, it's actually the name of a property since really at least eight hundred years. So for a very very long time, at the time um, we're talking about medieval times, the property was owned by the church by the Cathedral of Orvieto. And thanks for, to that, we have some documents that are talking about the property. And funny things is that they were actually making some wine in for 13 centuries. Uh, there were two priests, John and Peter, that, were, that are mentioned on documents of the Cathedral of Orvieto, and that were in charge of the property of St. Mary of De Cugnano and making some wine for the Cathedral of Orvieto which at the time was a, a very important cathedral. Um, by the way, uh, did I didn't mention something that probably it's important to mention, like where exactly is Orvieto? Uh, maybe some of you have already visited the town. Uh, for those of you who haven't been in Italy or uh, planning to visit in the future, uh, Orvieto is a medieval town, pretty small, 20,000 people, that is located in the region of Umbria, and it's located between the two major cities of Florence and Rome. 
we're kind of in the middle of nowhere. So it takes one hour and a half to get to Florence, one hour and a half, and a half to get to Rome. But for that reason, it's a, it's a great place where to be. And um, it's a town that lives mostly uh, from uh, wine and tourism. So it's a great place also to visit. And it's a great and really easy place to reach because it's on the main major highway that connects the major cities in Italy. So if you're driving from Milan to Florence to Rome and to Naples, actually you'll be passing through Orvieto. So just I invite you to all to stop to Orvieto if it happens uh, in the near future. Back to the history of my winery, the Cugnano di Barbie has a very long history that goes back to 800 years. Don't ask me what the Cugnano means. Please don't, uh, don't ask that on, on the chat because I have no idea. Nobody knows what the Cugnano means. It's just been the name that has been around for 800 years. And uh, who knows who is the person who, is, who invented this name centuries and centuries ago. But when my dad arrived here in the 70s, uh, he was looking for some property to buy uh, because he wanted to actually get into vine, wanted to become a vine grower at the time. And he found this property and he fell in love with that. I'd like to tell you something about my father because he's, he's been the founder of the winery and uh, uh, he's really the person that, uh, um, uh, that actually established uh, what our kind of the rules, our missions, uh, mission as, uh, as the Cugnano di Barbie, as a wine producer. And uh, I'm really, really uh, trying to uh, uh, keep going on with his legacy. Actually, he passed away exactly three years ago. It was uh, the 1st of September 2019. So it's, uh, for me, it's great to remember him today in this podcast. And uh, uh, my dad was a winemaker. He was born in Brescia. Uh, my grandfather was a winemaker. Uh, but uh, my grandfather did own vineyards. He had a winery facility in the industrial town of Brescia. He was uh, purchasing grapes and wine from all around Italy and uh, bottling this wine. My dad, when he was in the early 20s, he started to go around in, uh, in Europe, in France, to visit wineries and so on. And it's there where he got some ideas of what he wanted his future to be. It's there that he said, I'm not happy to be just a bottle of wine. I actually want to have vineyards and I want to make great wines. That's amazing. And I'm so glad that we're able to honor your father today because I remember finding a quote that your father had said that he had said, I founded De Cugnano de Barbi in 1973 with the only aim to produce high quality terroir driven wines. And I was actually going to ask you about that. So I'm glad that we were able to honor him today on the anniversary. Thank you, Julie. Uh, yeah, I, I love that sentence. Uh, my dad once uh, wrote it, uh, I don't remember which occasion, and uh, I, uh, I always loved that sentence because it really synthesized what it was his mission. Um, as I said, he, he, in, the, in, his, in his 20s, he went often to France with some friends. He was studying winemaking making in viticulture. And it's there where he really fell in love with the idea of uh, winery, as we know now. So own the vineyard, make wine and make good wine and sell, it, sell the wine at good prices as well. Uh, you know, viticulture and winemaking in Italy till the 80s, was not really uh, technology, super extremely technologically advanced. And uh, most of the wine was still sold in big jars and uh, in uh, Osteria. And the, the quality, um, the idea of high quality wines was not really so, uh, you know, spread around Italy. Uh, 
And uh, after one of his trip, actually he was in Bourgogne at the time, uh, after one of his trip, uh, he came back, I think he was 22 or 23, and he said to his father, who, whose name was Enzo, we have we share the same name, and he said, okay, dad, I know what I want to do. I, I'm happy to, to be in the wine business, but I really want to have my vineyard and I want to make wines that have a sense of place. And at the time, I, I, my grandfather wasn't really, uh, uh, didn't really like this idea too much, but he was happy to just to sponsor him. So he helped him to uh, finance him uh, for, uh, to, to purchase some land. And uh, uh, my dad, uh, for some reasons, he, he decided he, he was in love for, for in uh, for the Vieto area. Uh, he had a winery in Brescia, so northern Italy. Brescia is uh, not far from Milan and not far from Verona. It's between the two cities. Uh, but at the, the time, my grandfather was purchasing a lot of Orvieto. We talk about Orvieto, I guess, later on in more in details, uh, Julie. But uh, what I want to mention is that at the, t- at the time, in the 60s and 70s, Orvieto was a big thing in terms of white wine. Lots of Orvieto or, or wines was going abroad and was sold by Tuscan producers together with the Chianti. So most of the restaurants actually didn't have a Pinot Grigio, but they had an Orvieto in their menus and the wine list. So, um, so my grandfather was selling a lot of Orvieto, knew some people here in the territory. And uh, uh, one day they were looking for uh, some land and my dad just found this property on sale that was called De Cugnano. And uh, uh, he visited the place, he liked the place, but what really made him to fall in love with the place was that he saw the same oyster shells that he saw like a couple of years before in, uh, in Bourgogne. He said, oh my God, here we have oyster shells like in Chablis, he said. Uh, it was, you know, it was in his early 20s, super excited about all the winemaking and the, 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 the like vine growing thing. And uh, this thing really clicked in his mind and said, okay, this is the place where I want to build my winery and want to stay. And so he, he, he purchased the Cugnano. He called the place the Cugnano dei Barbi. And that was 1973. And really since the beginning, the idea of my dad was really to make, not just make wine, but make wine that was high quality and uh, uh, with a sense of place, as I was saying. So terroir driven. But for me, is really, and for, for my dad, was really the mini scent of, of the salt and the shells that you find in the soil, for example. Oh, yes. And I remember when I visited your property, how when we had gone down to the cellar and how we could see, you know, the, I guess, the influence of the previous soils. And it's as if I wanted to take a picture and you could use that as, you know, in a textbook, just saying, like, if you want to know more about soils and how they affected the Orvieto wine region, here you go. Here's the example of that. And that was just such an amazing experience to see. So then, yes, so let's talk about Orvieto wines. I, you know, funny enough, my mother, I remember when I was younger, uh, her per- her preferred wine was an Orvieto Classico. And she had always enjoyed drinking that, you know, with, um, of course, with dinner. And, but when we talk about Orvieto Doc, what would you like our listeners to know about the dock, and then, of course, um, you know, the special aspects of Orvieto wines. Yeah. Um, I'd say, first of, first thing, I would, I would like to give some facts about the Orvieto DOC. So Orvieto is the name of the town and also the name of the white wine that is produced in this area. And it's the biggest the DOC of Umbria. It accounts of about 
uh, 60% of the total DOC wine produced in the region. Umbria is not big, but, uh, you know, Orvieto is a big part of the DOC wine of the region. We're talking about uh, between 10 to 12 million bottles a year. As I said, it's a white wine and it's a blend. So uh, the fact that it's a blend usually like uh, makes thing a bit complicated when you have to translate them and communicate them uh, because blends are always complicated to describe. Um, the rule to make of Rovieto require that you use two local grapes, and this is mandatory. You need to use one local grape, which is called Grecchetto, which is uh, very common in Umbria. And the second grape you have to use, it's Trebbiano or Procanico, which is a local clone of Trebbiano. These two grapes are mandatory. They need to be up to 60%. And, uh, um, and uh, you, you, need, you, you can mix in the quantity you want. So you can have a 39% Grecchetto or 20% Grecchetto and the rest of Trebbiano, for example. Then 40% of the blend is uh, kind of free. So we have a certain, uh, we have a list of varietals we can use. I like to use some Vermentino and Chardonnay, for example, in my Mare Antico that I love as grapes to grow my soil. And this really gives us some flexibility in terms of the wine and the style we want to get as producers. Another thing that I would like to talk about Orvieto uh, is about the history of Orvieto because uh, Orvieto uh, wines is really one of the oldest wines of Italy. Orvieto wines were already well known in medieval times. Orvieto was, uh, for those of you who visit Orvieto, you'll see is, is a city on the top of a rock with a huge cathedral and in medieval time was a, a really an important city because the pope was spending time in orvieto we're not far from rome so the pope in certain times of history he really spent decades and years and so on in orvieto and you know the pope needed not just uh, a safe place where to stay with a good palace and a good church he also needed uh, good food good wine good pottery and so on and so it was really helping to bring a lot of business to Orvieto. And uh, uh, so people from Orvieto realized that. And uh, see, in the beginning, the Pope was importing wine to Orvieto when he was coming here. And the city was getting actually some taxes from the wine imported from uh, Campania and from Liguria to Orvieto. But then in the mid of the 13th century, the people of Orvieto actually started to make their own wine for, for the Pope. And uh, it's uh, thanks to that that Orvieto was, is still known as the wine of the Pope because really the, the Pope started to drink Orvieto wine, was bringing it back to, the, to Rome with him. And uh, it was a wine that was really, really popular in Rome in the past uh, 50, 100 years. Um, and after the Second World War, uh, the Orvieto saw a new like uh, increase, in, increase a lot in volume, especially thanks to export market and thanks to Tuscan producers, because Tuscan producers needed uh, like a, a white varietals, white wine to sell together with, with, with their Chianti. And so lots of Tuscan producers arrived in the area and they started to buy grapes, buy wine, and bottle these wines with their own brands. And thanks to that, Orvieto grew in quantity and started to be spread all around the world. Also, uh, uh, this happened before, let's say, what I call the Pinot Grigio revolution. Like now Pinot Grigio has taken over basically all the white wine space uh, from Italy in the, in the shelves on, on the shops in most of the countries of the world. I'm thinking about the US, for, for example. 
But uh, if you go back in those days, uh, Pinot Grigio was not that big thing. And Orvieto was really one of the wines that was in mostly, basically, all the wine lists in the restaurants and all the wine stores. And I think right now it's an ex really exciting time for Orvieto because we are a bunch of producers, we have a new generation coming in, and we're really reinventing ourselves right now with the legacy we have from our, the, our families and the history of our wineries. But I, I believe there is a really beautiful energy right now and we, in the way we are reproposing ourselves, reinventing our style and our wines. So I'm really, really happy and, and optimistic about uh, the future of this wine and this appellation. Yes, and education is at the forefront because as wine drinkers know more about the, the various Orvieto soils the, and more about, of course, think about Orvieto and Umbria in itself. Sometimes, you know, the nearby Tuscan region will always sometimes get more, you know, publicity and such. There's more attention. But I was really telling, you know, people this summer that Umbria has everything of Tuscany. I know there might be some listeners who might, of course, love the Tuscany region, but Umbria has everything. It has, you know, we have culture, we have gastronomy, we have wines, historic wines, and then there's also just, if you're thinking of, you know, the picturesque hills, it's just so much that's available in Umbria, but it's sometimes, you know, people don't always think of visiting that region because it's landlocked, but that area has a special aspect to it that people should explore. So for myself, I would, you know, I spent about three weeks in Umbria this summer, and it was I was just so happy to, to go to all these, besides Perugia, besides Orvieto, you know, I was going into the smaller little Borghi and it was just such a great experience. And that's what, when I'm talking about Orvieto wines now to customers, the goal is, okay, we have a wine that, yes, you know, you've heard of Orvieto Classical, but think about if we're talking about volcanic soils, sandy soils, clay soils, and alluvial soils, we really have four different types of wines even because you change your soil you can change your wine so that's where education really comes into play with for wine consumers it's knowing about soils and how they can affect those wines so that's great and then of course the native grapes because grecetto and then with procanico talking about you know even the distribution of those grapes and how you know when you talk about the proportion how that can change your wine so there is so much to try with orvieto are you enjoying this podcast? There is so much more high-quality wine content available from Mama Jumbo Shrimp. Check out our new wine study maps, our books on Italian wine, including Italian Wine Unplugged, The Jumbo Shrimp Guide to Italian Wine, Sangiovese Lambrusco and other stories, and much, much more on our website, mamajumboshrimp.com. Now back to the show. So of course, your Orvieto Wine Ambassadors, that's what we're working on doing this year. So, and besides the Orvieto wines, I know that the Mezzo Classical wine is very special to your winery. Can you tell us about that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's actually was the first wine that my dad produced, and that was 1978. And he produced this wine together with uh, the first Orvieto Classico, which at the time was not called Mare Antico, but was called the Cugnano dei Barbe Bianco. And... Uh, um, it's very special because it's a wine that is linked not to the tradition of Orvieto, but to the region of my family. 
uh, as you were saying, my family is originally from Brescia, not far from Franciacorta. And, uh, and so when my dad opened the Cugnano, he brought with him his winemaker at the time, consultant winemaker. It was an important winemaker in Franciacorta uh, and that was helping to, you know, to, uh, establish a, a great wineries, a new great wineries there in Franciacorta, which was a pretty new wine region uh, in Italy in those, those years. So when they arrived in Italy, they said, why don't we make a sparkling wine as well? And, uh, and so they did. The first year they tried to, uh, to make a spumante out of 100% Trebbiano. And it was great just to understand how Trebbiano reacts, how, especially when, uh, when you uh, harvest the Trebbiano early and the great acidity that it can bring. Uh, it was a great, great teaching from, from, for my dad uh, to learn about the, the place, the terroir, and so on. And a few years after, he, he started to add some Chardonnay, and now it's a method classical that we make with Chardonnay and Pinot Noir, 50% each. And uh, it's a method classical that stays on East for three, uh, about three years in the Etruscan caves that we have on, uh, on the hill of the Cugnano. I told you the history of the, of the property, uh, about the medieval history of the property, but actually we know that Etruscan lived on the property 2,000 years ago. The Etruscans lived this area before the Romans arrived uh, and they conquered the area. And uh, uh, probably the caves that we're now using, and we have about 20 small caves, they were Etruscan tombs back in those days tombs that have been opened by Romans that were looking for gold or for, you know, uh, value, uh, valuable things, and uh, then have been used by local farmers for uh, storing cheese, wine, or uh, keep the animals there and so on. And these caves are great because, you know, in caves you have a constant temperature throughout the year. So it's great for making the second fermentation of a sparkling wine. So every year when we make the sparkling wine, we just make 10,000 bottles of this wine. So it's a very niche product. And uh, uh, we, we bottle the, 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 the sparkling wine, the wine in the main cellar. Then we bring the bottle for a re-fermentation in the caves. And then we, leave the, we forget the bottles done there for about three years and a half. And after that, we do the degorgement in the caves. And then we bring the bottles back up to the cellar on the main, on the top of the hill, where we wash the bottle, we label them, and then we start selling the wine. And uh, it's, you said it's special wine uh, for me, also because it's a wine that is really linked to the, also the terroir in this case. You were mentioned before the, the soils of Orvieto. Uh, it's something that I didn't mentioned when we talked about Orvieto. Orvieto is composed by four major areas in terms uh, of geology. You have a volcanic area in the south, you have a, a clay area and an alluvial area on the northwest. I'm on the northeast where you have a slightly older soil, which used to be an ocean seabed. So extremely calcareous and rich of shells, uh, about 2.5, 3 million years old shells. And... Um, when, especially when you pick up the grapes early and you have a good acidity and uh, you have these like calcium and shells driven flavors in, in the in the wine which is really really great with the spumante so it's a wine that I really really enjoy making and uh, I don't want to increase the quantity but it's something that I keep want to do in the next few years yes it is a very lovely uh, Mezzo Classico thank you again for 
being able to try it when I was there in June. And of course, you know, thinking about, of course, the years, this year's, let's say, heat wave that I experienced as well as the rest of Italy. And then, of course, the drought that, you know, unfortunately, Italy was experiencing. So did that affect, I know that you had done a harvest for your Pinot Noir earlier, I think this month, right? I think it was at the beginning of August. So has the drought or even the heat wave affected that harvest? Oh, uh, yeah, it affected in a way because it started, everything started really, really early. We started to pick up to harvest the Pinot Noir for the sparkling wine on August the 4th, which is we are on the same day that we started the uh, harvest in 2017, which was one of the driest year we have had in the, in the last uh, 50 years. So yeah, it was really, really dry. But luckily we had some, some showers uh, in uh, around the 14th, 15th and 16th of, uh, of August. And then the temperature went down and the vineyards managed to get some water. And that was a relief for all of us in the area, really, because that really saved the winery. If we didn't, we didn't get any, any rain in those, in those days, probably uh, harvest would have already been finished by now. It is still a very early harvest in general. Uh, tomorrow, for example, uh, tomorrow we'll be finishing already the white uh, grapes. Uh, we've already, at uh, De Cugnano, for example, give me an example of the uh, varietals I grow here. At De Cugnano, we have several varietals, about seven uh, white varietals. We have uh, Chardonnay, Sauvignon, um, Grecchetto, Trebbiano, Vermentino, uh, Verdello. And basically, we already harvested everything but Vermentino. And Vermentino will be harvested tomorrow. To give you a reference, usually we harvest with Vermentino in uh, about uh, mid of September. So we are about 15 days ahead of schedule. And that's a lot. And yes. uh, this and is the same for red grapes. Also, Merlot will probably start harvesting Merlot on Monday. So that means about seven to eight days earlier than usual. Wow. And then also... Climate change. Yes. Okay. So, and that was... Eventually, I was going to ask about that because I wanted to shift to... I know, you know, we are noticing climate change effects in Italy, especially with um, conditions this summer. But when we think about something that's unique to the Orvieto, especially the Mufa Nobile and the Botrytis... Um, so can you talk about Mufa Nobile for Decognano dei Barbi? And then what do you see taking place with climate change with that type of wine? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, you're right, Julie. Probably this is the one that will be mostly affected by climate change in the next few years. In the next few years. Actually, it's already affected right now. Uh, for those of you who don't know Mufa Nobile, uh, Mufa Nobile is the Italian name uh, that we call botrytis in area with. So um, uh, Orvieto is the only DOC in Italy that has the appellation also for Mufa Nobile. So there is a sweet wine made out of uh, botrytis, late botrytized late harvest grapes. And you can only make it in Orvieto, not that in every area uh, of Italy you, uh, you can do that. Obviously, you can. But in Orvieto, for certain reasons, like the presence, for example, of the lake of Corbara, which is not far from me, we have certain conditions, um, climate and microclimate conditions, under which the Botrytis cinereus, which is a fungus, develops and spreads throughout the, throughout the grapes. 
And uh, uh, it's a pretty, pretty recent wine for Orvieto, Mufa Nobile. Actually, the first uh, wine was produced by, by, by my dad in 1981. It's thanks to his travel in France that he saw a few uh, times Sauternes and the harvest there. And when he, he established the Cugnano, he realized that actually Trebbiano and Grecchetto had some botrytis. And so uh, in 1981, he tried to harvest those grapes and uh, he made this wine that we called, uh, with a French name, Pourriture Noble, because at the time the name Mufa Noble didn't exist. And nobody was talking about Mufa Noble at the time. So the only way that my dad had to communicate that this that wine was made with botrytis in area was to use like a French name because that was the common language in winemaking. You know, ages that was it was just eighty one, but it seems like ages ago. So um, now there are a few producers that are making this wine, which is which I personally love uh, because it's sweet but not too sweet, great acidity, and it pairs extremely extremely well with cheese. And um, uh, and I personally, I make uh, the Cugnano about between three to five thousand bottles, not every year, unfortunately. And this is because of climate change. My dad used to make in the eighties this wine basically every year. That was a constant. But when it was late September, botrytis was develop de- developing on the grapes, so it was uh, going to the vineyards like two, three times during like two weeks. Picking the grapes with botrytis, bringing them to the to the cellar, crushing the grape, pressing pressing the grapes, making uh, the mass and long fermentation, and you obtain the wine. Uh, but what we are seeing now with climate change is that the, the weather is kind of crazy. We have certain years where it's too wet, too rainy, to make uh, to have this condition for the botrytis in area, this fungus to develop. I'm thinking about 2014, for example. And uh, or uh, and also we are having uh, two dry years like this year, for example. This year I'm I'm planning not to make any botrytis wine. Uh, this is just because it's too dry, and the botrytis in area this fungus needs humidity, like all fungus, to develop. Uh, what we say usually is that botrytis needs uh, three conditions: you, you need ripe ripe grapes, and you need a certain amount of humidity. And the right amount of temperature, we need, which shouldn't need, is not too high and not too low. And then, like fog in the morning and good sunny days and windy day during the day. Uh, but now with this extremely dry weather, with uh, no humidity, what we are seeing is that, for example, this year, uh, Sauvignon Blanc and Grochetto have already been harvested. They were already ripe a week ago. That was um, August the 22nd, 23rd. And that's way too early in late August to have a botrytis to develop because the botrytis needs that kind of early autumn kind of weather, you know, some foggy mornings, a bit of rain, humidity, uh, lower temperature. And uh, just keeping the grapes on the plant uh, to wait for botrytis to, to develop, it's okay, but you can do that for a week, 10 days but not one month, that would be too much. So for example, this year, and that happened also last year, the same thing, we decided just to harvest everything and just to make uh, steel wine, not to leave any grapes on the, on the plant, just because the botrytis, in my opinion, for my grapes, is not going to develop. 
the last time I tried, even if the weather was not uh, on my side, was 2017. I usually have a couple of hectares of uh, vineyards that I leave for botrytis. They are vineyards uh, that are a bit lower in elevation um, on the hill of Decuniano, where usually you get a bit, little bit more fog, for example. But uh, 2017 was an extremely dry year, as I was saying. And uh, by the time we had the condition of climatic condition for botrytis to develop, which was late September, early October, the grapes that are left on the plants were already too dry for the botrytis to develop on the grapes. Wow. So 2017 and now 2022 as the years that you're not doing the Mufa Nobile. Actually, also 2021, I skipped. Oh, okay. But 19 and 20 were great. So great vintages. But as you can see, it's now it's one, um, we can make Mufa Nobile one every three years in general. Oh, wow. And that's just something very interesting to keep in mind about Orvieta wines now, because, you know, the Mufa Nobile, as you mentioned, as a sweeter wine can be paired with desserts. I know that at one of the producers, um, the other at Barberani, we had tried one, the ambassadors, we had tried one paired with even the aperitivi. And it's something oh, yeah. that I would have never thought of. But we were asked to keep our minds open and do that. And it was just an amazing pairing. So, you know, I'm hoping that the Mufa Nobile, yes, we have these uh, climate conditions, but it's something that's unique to Orvieto and that, you know, it's part of the legacy of the wine region. So hopefully that we can, you know, continue to talk about it even to the future and pair it with our meals, of course. So, oh, wow. Now, again, as a history teacher, you know, I'm glad that you had mentioned the role of the Etruscans earlier, because many times we think about the role of the Greeks and the Ro- especially the Romans in Italian winemaking. But the Etruscans were so important to Italian history and wine history. But then as the English teacher, I was thinking about your Mare Antico wine, which is an Orvieto wine. And of course, how the names, you know, many producers, the names of their wines are very fitting because it's even telling a story. And in Italian, of course, but making connections with words. That's what I always tell my students. So can you talk to us about your Mare Antico, specifically why it's named that and why you chose, how it represents, I guess, even your property? Yeah, Mare, Mare, Mare Antico is, is the one that probably represents the, my winery the best because it's the wine that is probably linked the most, not just in the name, but also in, in the wine itself, to, to, to the place where, where I have the vineyards. Mare Antico, uh, for those of you who don't know, it, Italian means ancient sea. Sorry for my pronunciation, but it's like ancient ocean. It's a connection to the old ocean that ideally was, uh, well, actually, well, not ideally, that was uh, actually covering our hill 2.5 slash 3 million of years ago. So a long time ago. And uh, the vines that I have now on, uh, on the property really have their roots that develops in this extremely sandy soil with lots of shells, oyster shells. And the amazing thing about the the vines that I don't think, I'm not an expert in other types of fruit, but I, I don't think it happens in the other fruit. Uh, the vines really manage, manage to capture those flavors from the soil, from the minerals, uh, from from the ancient sea that was that we had the Cugnano, and they managed to transfer this into the grapes and then into the wine. 
which I don't believe any other fruit you can do that. So when you taste the wine, you can actually recall the ancient sea and the salt and the and the shells that are in the in the in the dirt and in the in the in the soil of a hill. And um, this connection for me is extremely extremely important. For me, making wine is really like talking about and trying to give an emotion about the place where the vines are and uh, the, the history of Orvieto and the history of my hill and the like the priests that were making wine here 800 years ago, but also the old sea that was, is releasing and giving us back all that minerals and uh, all those flavors into the, the glass of wine. And um, this is something I keep doing experimentation and really want to focus on in the next few years. I want to have more and more terroir in my glass of wine. Yes. And I have enjoyed the Mare Antico. And to me, but again, it's all about soils. So your soils with the Mare Antico, we have a distinct wine. And then, of course, as we change our soils, we change our wines. But the soil is the history of the wine region. And that's why I think Orvieto is so unique because of all these different soils telling stories. And then when we oh, think yeah. about Orvieto, of course, white wines, we focus on white wines, but I know that, of course, you talked about that you produce red wines, but what do you see as the future of red wines, maybe in not just Orvieto, but maybe in Umbria? Because we have a focus on white wines, of course. And then, you know, there is Montefalco, the Sagrantino, but if we're thinking in Orvieto itself, what do you feel is the future for the red wines? Well, uh, you know, Orvieto, is, uh, the, the white wine is the history of his territory. Um, red wine for many, many years, many centuries has been just a, a very small fraction of the production of the wine produced in the area. But uh, many producers, like my father, started to plant red grapes in the 80s and, and the 90s. Uh, right now, for example, in my case, uh, I produce about uh, like one third red and two thirds white. So it's, I have a consistent production, about 40%, actually, a bit more. 40% of my, my wines are red. And you know what? Actually, we have one that are selling more, more quickly, more quickly. So uh, I have a very good feeling about the future of red wines, even, even if we are in an historically white wine region. Uh, I'm, I, what I see is that consumers and people that taste my wines really like also my reds. And actually, sometimes just because they are less available and so on, they really look for, uh, for the new vintages and they want to set this aside and are really excited about the wine. And uh, I'm also very excited because for, while for the white wine, the history is kind of set. I mean, the white wine has been done here for so many centuries and, and we have so much to learn from the past. But for the red, uh, we, we, we don't have much history we have to follow. So we can do experimentation and we can really um, decide our future and, you know, decide something new. And, uh, you, you know, we, we never talk too much about red wine with our producers. But I think that, uh, that most of the other producers of Orvieto are thinking the same way I do. And uh, basically, all the producers in this area also produce red wine. It's part of their uh, of their portfolio. And uh, I think we probably should we should start communicate communicating more about the reds. Uh, but they definitely have something to say. Yes, and of course, when we're thinking about your the wines, not just in Orvieto, but of course Umbrian wines, we talk about Umbrian cuisine. 
So I know that when I was in the region for multiple weeks, one of my favorite things uh, to probably, I probably ate it a little too much was the porchetta. You know, I, <laughs> I, and my blood work is showing that, but, <laughs> you know, the porchetta I noticed was a staple to the region. Not, you know, I had it in Orvieto a certain way and I'd spent probably about 10 days in Castellone del Lago. And that's a smaller um, borgo north of Orvieto. But I was told this porchetta, besides the fish uh, from the lake, this is this is the region. So what can you tell us about some of the typical food pairings with your wines? Like what would be the ideal meal with your wines? Uh, well, uh, talking about tradition, I would pair with uh, something very traditional, a uh, dish that I really, really love, which is, uh, uh, I'm thinking about the whites right now, uh, but uh, the polo lorvietana, which is like a, a, a chicken with some black olives and uh, olive oil, and it's uh, just cooked in, in a pan, and it's it's great. Or even some uh, pappardelle with wild boar is could really 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 nice as a pairing. Uh, over here, also, it's pretty common rabbit. Uh, I'm not sure if some of you maybe don't like rabbit. I don't know. I know in some countries a rabbit is not a is is not a typical uh, animal you eat, but in Italy we do eat a lot of rabbits, and I personally love rabbit. But also cinghiale, you know, wild boar uh, cook, cooked uh, like in, uh, in small pieces uh, with uh, in what we we called in white, so with no tomato sauce, just in a pan with olive oil. So it could also be a great pairing. Maybe that is more for red action. But and of course, I was forgetting truffles. Umbria is one of the major producers of truffles. Truffles in Italy. So when it's truffle season, you find truffles everywhere. And, you know, white truffle especially. We're approaching the season of white truffle, which is great. I like, I love white truffle. Well, that would be a fantastic pairing with my white. Or with Orvieto wine in general. Oh, gosh. I'm thinking about all the meals that I had now. I'm daydreaming about them. <laughs> because I had so much good food in Umbria. Because sometimes, again, when we think about typical food destinations, it's, you know, maybe people are not thinking of Umbria, but when I had spent so much time there this summer, I thought, no, of course, Tuscany, yes, it has this type of appeal, but go to Umbria, explore everything from its wines, culture, the Etruscan history, of course, and then the different foods. And when you mentioned rabbit before, I, you know, in the United States, that's not something that is a typical dish. Um, but if my mother was Italian and she we, she didn't really cook that when I was growing up, but my husband is from Napoli and that's a very common dish. And I remember with my mother-in-law, I think that was one of the first it's to see is, is Julia going to eat the Cornelio because it's just like, a <laughs> you know, I remember it was this, is she going to eat it? And I did, it was, it was lovely, but I had to get over it because I just wasn't used to eating it. But now, you know, when in Rome, Okay, cinghiale, all right, rabbit, okay. Even I think I had donkey in the Verona area. So that's we just have to embrace that because Italian wine, Italian foods, the pairings are great. Now, when we think about, because um, I, of course, had mentioned Umbria and how sometimes it's overlooked and people should visit it more. When you think of the Umbria region and what would you like to tell people to come and visit? Like, why should people consider Umbria on their next itinerary i'd say because it's a it's a tuscany that is not as touristy 
as uh, Tuscany. It's still a very local and uh, a very local local soul, I believe. So if you travel in, in Umbria, you can see landscapes that are very similar to Tuscany, a very similar cuisine, uh, but with much less buildings, much, much less industries around, and, uh, and is more original. At the same time, I believe Umbria is very spiritual as well. Uh, you know, Umbria is one, is always, people always say that Umbria is, has been home to so many saints, uh, like in the Catholic Church, that there is a lot of the spirituality also going on in, in Umbria. I know, I, actually, if you like to meditate and so on, there are lots of places that do retreats where you can go and do, if you are a religious Catholic, for example, some retreats, Catholic re- retreats, but also if you like yoga, I know there are amazing yoga retreats in Umbria that are so peaceful and, uh, and great where people go there and, you know, switch off from uh, the connected world and just recharge o- over here. And uh, Umbria is a great place for, for food, as we said, the truffle, wild boars, but also art. If you come to Orvieto, I believe the Orvieto Cathedral is one of the most beautiful, beautiful cathedrals you can see with the paintings inside from Luca Signorelli uh, are amazing. Michelangelo, before painting the Sistine Chapel, he stopped in Orvieto to study how uh, Luca Signorelli painted the, the, the paintings in the cathedral here, just to give you an idea of the importance of the paintings that we have in Orvieto. Or if you go to Assisi, Assisi is an amazing little town. It's the town where St. Francis was from. And you can visit amazing churches with beautiful masterpieces inside. So there is really, really a lot to, to see. But you can go to Gubbio or to also to Norcia and so on. And in every place you go, you'll see lots, lots of history. And especially if you like medieval history, Umbria has a lot, to, a lot, a lot to, to say. It's a place where really every single village has a lot of medieval history to tell uh, and to share. Yes, one of my favorite shows, you might remember the show Don Mateo. Uh, he, oh, yeah. Yes, and that show took place in Gubbio. And so oh, yeah. one of, when I visited Umbria for the first time many years ago, it's as if I just wanted to, oh, I need to go where Don you know, Don Mateo was, and I wanted to visit this medieval town. And then, of course, made my way to Perugia and other uh, cities in Umbria. But spending this concentration of time this summer, although it was very warm, that's the warmest I've ever experienced in Italy myself. And I needed to, um, you know, especially keep track of my, you know, the drink, the powder, the polace powder. (laughs) That was probably, the pharmacy was, uh, probably very interested as to why I was always buying it. It's like I was stocking up on it. But the Umbrian heat was very particular for me. I realized when we were talking about it with the Orvieto ambassadors, I said, I am not a heat resistant grape. That's just (laughs) (laughs) that is not if we were to, you know, compare ourselves to grapes, I am not one of them. But again, I look forward to visiting Umbria in other seasons as well. And and the heat but Julie, by the way, was totally unusual, as you know. Usually it's not that hot. We had, you, you, you probably arrived the warmest week we ever had in Umbria in the last 10 years. <laughs> oh, it was an experience for me. I'm sure yeah. Tom still remembers it. And then when I had left Umbria, I went to Rome, and I was in Rome for a few days before coming back to the United States. And at one point, uh, someone had stopped to ask me for directions to Villa Borghese because I was in that area. 
and it was maybe 30 seconds of an interaction. And then when I went to walk away, my sandals had melted into the pavement because the pavement was melting. And this is, I said, well, this is an experience I've never had in 15 years of coming to Italy. But again, very particular. Let's hope it's not for the future. But when we think about the future of De Cugnano de Barbi, your winery itself, what do you see as that future? Ben, I, I, re, I just want to keep doing what my dad has done, uh, had done in the last uh, 40 years. I want to make wine as best as I can and really terroir-driven terroir wines with a sense of place. I want to grow a bit the winery. I bought some land uh, last year, uh, not far from me, so I'm really excited about this project. I'm, I'm not going to tell you already what I'm going to plant, but I don't want to grow too much. I just want to want really to bring on the legacy of my dad, so I want to use my own grapes and uh, that, is are coming, that is coming from a certain lot of land that I know that will give terroir-driven wine that I'm looking for. Perfect. Well, thank you again, Enzo, for uh, speaking with us this evening. It was a great discussion. And of course, I hope everyone enjoyed learning more about Orvieto and its wines. And of course, De Cugnano de Barbi. So thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you so much for having me here. All right. So, Stevie. All right. So thank you so much. I mean, it was uh, thoroughly exhaustive. So I'm not sure I can add anything, except if you guys want to check out what it looks like, he has an amazing state. There's an aerial view. I just went to check out his um, Insta, De Cugnano de Barbie, one word. And there's also a pool, I recall, with your dog. He loves jumping in the pool. Um, and the aerial view is a little bit too fast for me. It's making me a little bit dizzy and so, but you get an idea. And it is very slopey. So um, it's terribly interesting to go into this area. And I do agree with both um, Julia and, and so it is an undervalued region. Um, so this area, if you get a chance, it is landlocked. You will need a car, but um, otherwise a fabulous trip indeed. And hope, hope you guys can make it there. Thanks again, Enzo, for that lovely session. And uh, I'm just going to bring up Laika, if she's alive. Laika, are you on? Yeah, I'm alive. I'm still here. Okay, like, a, would you like to tell us who's up next, next week, and what time, what day? Sure. Um, so it's going to be on September 7th. That's a Wednesday. Um, and it's at 5 p.m. Um, because that's the availability. Um, so it's Michela Longari. Um, he's um, He was recently um, awarded for uh, Italian Wine Ambassador. Uh, and then um, he will be interviewing um from from Loredan Gasparini so it's going to be Dominic Zucchetto he was here earlier he was trying to listen to okay fantastic I'm not sure I can host that because I will be actually in your area Julia mm -hmm. we have the Campania stories we have a Gita Scholastica going on as of Monday so we'll be in Naples through Wednesday and we will be, I, I believe we will be traveling back on Wednesday. So not sure like I can take care of that. But um, looking forward to that, Michele Longari, he, he's, in, he's an importer um, from London. He did just get acclimated as the Italian wine ambassador at the venue Institute of Masters of Wine. So it's great fun getting to know him. Glad that he'll be hosting um, next week. So that's it for now. Signing off. Thank you so much, everyone. Ciao, ragazzi. Until next time. Thank you. Ciao. Ciao, ciao, ragazzi. Ciao, ragazzi.
Ciao. We hope you enjoyed today's episode brought to you by the Wine to Wine Business Forum 2022. This year will mark the ninth edition of the forum to be held on November 7th and 8th, 2022 in Verona, Italy. Remember, the second early bird discount on tickets will be available until September 18th. For more information, please visit us at winetowine.net. I'm Joy Livingston, and I am the producer of the Italian Wine Podcast. Thank you for listening. We are the only wine podcast that has been doing a daily show since the pandemic began. This is a labor of love, and we are committed to bringing you free content every day. Of course, this takes time and effort, not to mention the cost of equipment, production, and editing. We would be grateful for your donations, suggestions, requests, and ideas. For more information on how to get in touch, go to italianwinepodcast.com.